California. I love it here. I love it. Nobody leaves. Everybody wants to stay. There's a reason for it. Uh, well, hey, it is so good to be with you this morning. Uh, we're in kind of in the middle of a speaker series. Um, so I, I'm privileged to be here with you as Mike is away studying, and he'll be rejoining us soon. And so this morning, we're again taking a break from Luke for the month, and we're going to be in the book of Colossians. So if you want to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, uh, while you turn there, I'll give you a little back, bit of back, ba ba ba. Sometimes just your words, they get, they get jumbled up. Give you a little background on the book. Paul has planted a church in the city of Colossae. And now this church is interesting. It's an extension of Paul's movement to plant churches in the Roman Empire. And so as we look at this, we find that Paul is writing to confront a philosophy that's in the area and more specifically attacking the church that he has planted. So before we get to the philosophy, we want to kind of look at what two kinds of groups would probably be in this church. The first kind would be Jewish believers, believers that were raised reading, listening, and studying Torah, but have since placed their faith in Jesus, and they continue to believe in the promises of God for the people of Israel as it's been uh, fulfilled in Jesus. The other group are Gentiles. This is the primary people group that Paul has a mission to. He has a mission to, to invite the Gentiles to the table, to be a part of the people of Israel, and as a result, to partake in the promises of God. Now, there's a philosophy in the church, and we don't know exactly what the philosophy is. Scholars are still kind of on the fence about what it could be. There's a lot of different opinions. But there's some clues that help us have some insight onto what it might be. So as Paul is talking about the philosophy, he talks about how the philosophy mentions spiritual days. Food laws, purity laws. So as we're kind of listening in on one side of this phone conversation, we imagine that probably the philosophy is actually based in Judaism to an extent. Paul throughout the letter is continually asking the people of Colossae to stay rooted in the story of Jesus, to stay rooted in the teachings that Paul has given them concerning the Messiah. So as we look at what this philosophy might be, and again, there's a few different takes, most naturally it's probably a group of Jewish people who are in the church, who are, who are speaking to the Gentiles and saying, you're not actually qualified to be part of the people of Israel. You've actually been disqualified from the promises of God because you don't observe the spiritual days the way that we do. You don't observe the food laws. You don't observe the purity laws. And if you want to be a part of the people of Israel, you have to do these things. Paul's furious because this is not the teaching that he gave to the Gentiles. See, Paul gave them a teaching. He gave them a story and a tradition that said, no, you can be a Gentile, not, not partake in those strict laws and still inherit the promises of God. These staunch Jewish believers, on the other hand, probably told a story there was more like the Pharisees, strict and rigid laws concerning food and concerning purity. And so as Paul is talking to the Colossians, he's continually asking them to reject this philosophy that he calls vain deceit based on human traditions, based on elemental principles, and he asks them to stay rooted 
in the story of Jesus, to stay rooted in the promises of God. And so we're going to read out of Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. It's actually sandwiched in between two pieces in which Paul is talking about this philosophy that is deceptive and false at its core. And Paul says this, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, being rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, when you talk about receiving Christ as Lord, when Paul talks about this, there's really two senses in which somebody can receive something. Somebody can receive something passively or somebody can receive something actively. Now, there's this thing going around on the internet. And if you're into social media or paying attention to the news, you've probably heard of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Has anybody in here actually participated in the ALS? We got some, yeah, we got a few people. They've done the Ice Bucket Challenge. So if you've partaken in it or you've seen it, you'll get this concept. Uh, It's really great, actually. It's raising awareness uh, for Lou Gehrig's disease and raising money for it. And people are kind of getting educated on what it is. But part of the challenge is that people volunteer to do this, they, they allow somebody to stand behind them and to pour a bucket of ice water on their head. Okay, I love it. It's a great idea. Uh, they're, they're, they're raising a lot of money for this cause. But the idea of doing this, when you're standing there, the idea is that you, you stand in front of the camera and you say, I'm accepting the ALS ice bucket challenge and I'm going to challenge three more people. And then it's like one, two, three, boom. You're just doused in cold water. And this would be the kind of passive receiving that can happen when you receive something. The person taking the water, they don't really have to do anything. They just stand there and the giver does everything else. They initiate the giving. They finish the giving. And when it's done, the the person who's participating in the challenge just kind of gets it. They've just kind of passively received it. Now, there's another kind of receiving that you can do, and it's, a, it's an active kind of receiving. Now, if you were thirsty, and I had a glass of water, and you wanted that glass of water, I could, I could offer you a glass of water. Now, if you want that, you're going to have to come forward, take the glass from me, take it to yourself, and enjoy that water. That's the kind of active receiving that can happen. You kind of have to play a part, and you have to do something. So when Paul talks about receiving Christ Jesus as Lord, he's probably most nearly referring to the active kind of receiving. That an invitation to join the Jesus movement has been extended to them. And at some point in the past, they've taken that invitation to themselves. They've seized it. They've taken the opportunity to themselves to follow Jesus. Now, to to, to accept Jesus as Lord... In this context, it it leans a lot on the idea of learning, to receive a kind of learning, to receive a tradition or a legacy. And and it wasn't the kind of legacy that you would inherit just to tell your kids bed stories at night or just to help explain the world and the way that it worked. The kinds of traditions and stories they passed on about Jesus had a very practical element to it. In the first century, when you heard these traditions and you, you took this kind of learning, you received this learning, it calls you to begin to act in a way 
that was in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. In the 21st century Western world, we actually kind of have a, we, we have a thing. We don't feel like learning equates the act of practicing it. So um, I had a roommate at one point. He was studying to be a doctor. He was one year away from being an optometrist. He's about nine months away now. He's an awesome guy. And uh, we were living together. And I was in a season where I was doing my best to eat clean. I was raised to try and eat a balanced diet, fruits, vegetables, clean meats. I went about 25 years of my life not doing that, eating McDonald's and Burger King. But I decided I kind of need to get my body in order. I should start eating a little more healthy. So I'd go to the store, I'd buy these things, and I'd cook on a consistent basis. And now when I would come home at night, I would see my roommate. His name's Mark. I'd I'd, I'd hop in the refrigerator, and I'd, I'd grab my things, I'd start cooking, and then I'd look at his side of the refrigerator, and I would notice that it's completely empty. He literally had none of his own food in the refrigerator. So I was curious. I was like, I wonder if he just like, has prepackaged stuff in the cupboard. So I went to his cupboard and I opened it. Nothing. No food. And as I'm thinking through it, I'm remembering, wait a second. I don't, I don't think I've actually ever seen Mark in the kitchen cooking food. And so Mark walks in. He's at McDonald's in his hand. I said, Mark, how many meals have you eaten out today? He said, well, I, you know. All three. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mark, uh, how many meals have you eaten out this week? He's like, well, basically all of them. Mark was a, was a, was a constant fast food guy. He didn't, he didn't cook any of his own meals. He didn't buy food. He would just go out to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And he wasn't exactly going to the Olive Garden and to Jamba Juice. And this has going to McDonald's, Taco Bell, Del Taco. And I would say, Mark! man, let me, let, me, let me just fix you a meal. Let me fix you a salad. Let me get you an apple. Let me get you something <laughs> that's good for you. He said, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I say, Mark, this is so bad for you. You've got to stop eating this stuff. He said, I know. I know it's bad for me. And, you know, someday I will start eating better. But right now I'm just not in that season. See, Mark knew that eating McDonald's and Burger King and Taco Bell was bad for him. But it didn't actually influence the way he actually acted in the world. I think for a lot of us, we can be like that. We know the right things to do, but it doesn't demand a certain kind of action for us. For the people in first century Israel, the legacy of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus demanded a kind of imminent practice. This practice was deeply formational in character. It was designed to turn them into a certain kind of person. And, and, and to do this, you had to have great confidence in the person you were learning from. You had to have great confidence in the story that was coming to you. It wasn't just the idea of acquiring historical facts or non-personal data. You wanted to not only trust what the teacher was telling you, but you wanted to trust the way the teacher lived. You wanted to make sure that not only did they know how to eat healthy, but they were actually practicing the art of eating healthy. They didn't actually know about the teachings of Jesus. They actually followed Jesus. And so when Paul, when he's confronting this philosophy in Colossae and throughout his, his letters, he always mentions that the tradition that he has, the teaching that he has and that he's passing on, he didn't receive it from another human. 
He didn't receive it from another rabbi or another school of thought. But instead, Paul actually received his tradition about Jesus from Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. And these were the same teachings that Paul had given to the church in Colossae. And so Paul is trying to establish that the story, the tradition that he passes on is authoritative and they can trust it. They can trust the teachings that they had received in the past. So Paul says, now you've received it in the past, stay rooted and stay built up in this story. Rooted and built up are oftentimes used together. We want to kind of look at those separately. But when Paul refers to rooted, he's oftentimes thinking about the kinds of images that would come to his mind through the Old Testament when you would talk about rooted. Now when we talk about rooted, you most naturally think of plants and trees and vines. So in the Old Testament, when they use the word rooted, it's, it's used more allegorically. It talks about the totality of man, the, the, the fullness of a people group or of a race. For Paul, the root that he often talked about, this plant that he talked about was the people of Israel. Oftentimes the Old Testament would talk about how God has taken Israel and planted her in the promised land. Or about how Israel is God's vineyard that God watches out over. And so when Paul says, be rooted, he's talking about the story of Israel. For Paul, this people group had a very specific root. It was the root of Abraham. If you were to go to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, you read the story of God calling Abraham. Calling him not only to be blessed by God, but to be a blessing to the world. In a sense, this blessing that, that Abraham was going to dispense to the world was, was in response to the curse that was in the world in chapter 3. So in a sense, God was asking Abraham to partake in the mission of reversing the curse in the world. And so as the story goes, for somebody like Paul, you have somebody like Abraham who is the very specific root. And this promise given to Abraham gets passed to Isaac. And this gets passed to Jacob. And Jacob becomes the people of Israel. Paul goes as far in the New Testament as to talk about the people of Israel as an olive tree. And how Abraham is Abraham's the root of the tree. And, and the tree trunk would be the people of Israel. And all the branches on the tree are the individuals who have said yes to God. Throughout the Old Testament, these individuals had to be ethnic native Israelites. But for Paul, he says something very prophetic. He says, but we're coming into a time after the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that these new wild branches are being grafted in. This extension to be involved in the promises of God isn't just for ethnic native Israelites. But now it's being extended to Gentiles and they can be grafted into the tree of Israel and participate in the story of Abraham. And Paul wants his church to remember this. So stay rooted. Stay rooted in the story. Know where you come from. So Paul says be rooted and be built up. Being built up can refer to being strengthened, being fortified, growing stronger. But more than that, the idea of being built up oftentimes in the Old Testament 
referred to the idea of being built into a house of God. It was, it, it was the building of a temple for a deity. It was, it was the building of a race of people. And for Israel, these three images, temple, God's house, people, they were all kind of interconnected because the people of Israel would go to the temple to worship and the temple became known as the house of God. It was where the presence of God was. If you follow the story that Abraham's referring to when he says to stay rooted, we know that at one point the people of Israel are in bondage in the land of Egypt. God brings them on a great journey out of Egypt on what we call the Exodus, and they're journeying through the desert. And as they're journeying through the desert, they consistently stop and they construct this tabernacle. It's portable, they're carrying it with them, and they they construct it, and all of Israel gathers around the tabernacle. And they gather because they believed that's where the presence of God dwelt. So they would gather to the tabernacle to remember God's presence among them, to remember to pray together, to worship together, to remember that they were connected as a people around God. As they journey through the desert, they eventually get settled in a land and they construct a physical temple that will stay in Jerusalem. And it serves the same purpose. It serves to be a kind of relic in which they would approach the temple because they believed when they came to the temple, they encountered God face to face. They connected with each other as a community around the temple and they prayed together and they worshiped together. As the people of Israel expands, not only in numbers but geographically, not everyone's able to make it to the temple all the time. So they construct these synagogues that are kind of like a a replacement temple when you can't actually go to the temple. So weekly they would gather at the synagogue and they would pray and they would worship and they would study God's word and they believed that in this place when they gathered together, God's presence was there. After the resurrection of Jesus and the church begins to expand outside of Israel and into the Roman Empire, homes kind of become the gathering place. They become the meeting place and people really hold to this idea that when two or more are gathered, there the presence of God is. For New Testament believers, they began to be filled with the revelation that God's presence wasn't just in the temple It wasn't just in the synagogue. It wasn't just in their homes that they actually, in a way, carried this presence. And this house of God was for all the nations. It wasn't just for Israel. It was for every nation of the world. So wherever a believer was there, the presence of God was too. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, at one point said, the purpose of the local church is to teach people to gather and to pray. So Paul wants to encourage these people of Colossae to be rooted in the story of Israel. Be rooted in the story of Abraham and be built up as a house of prayer together. Where you pray together and you worship together. But Paul also knows that there's a difference between having received something at one point and continuing to do that. You can't just eat a meal on one day and expect it to last you for a lifetime. You can't expect to stay friends with somebody and only talk to them once. There's a sense that eating and being friends and a lot of our activities, you have to do them over and over and over again. So in verse 6, Paul says this, So then just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue 
to live your lives in him. There's a difference between having received in the past and continuing in the present. Probably a more literal translation for the idea of, the idea of living in Christ would be walking in Christ. Um, I'm a big walker. I love to walk. Are there any walkers in the house? Come on, yes. If you haven't discovered the great art of walking, it's a great hobby. I'm like a young man with an old soul. I should say a seasoned soul, not an old soul, just a seasoned one. Um, but I love to walk. And at one point I was going to grad school. I was living in Pasadena. And Pasadena was a great city. I was, I was in this urban center where I actually didn't have a car, but I didn't need a car. I could walk literally everywhere that I needed to go. I could walk to the grocery store. I could walk to Target. Um, I could walk downtown. It was, it was just part of like my rhythm. I could walk to school. I could walk anywhere. And my walking was always purposeful. I was always walking from one place to another. But the kind of walking that Paul refers to when he says to, to continue to walk in Christ, it's the kind of non-purposeful walking. I know that sounds bizarre. I know the idea of like walking and moving with no purpose and not really going anywhere sounds strange, but just go into any 24-hour fitness and you'll see tons of people exerting a great deal of energy and baby, they're not going anywhere. You walk in, they're on the treadmill, they're on the bike, they're on the elliptical and they are just sweating profusely. They're running hard. Their breathing is heavy. They're watching days of our lives on the TV in front of them. It's like a big event for them. And I look at these things. I think, man, those things look so boring. I'd rather go outside and run or go for a walk by the beach or, you know, ride my bike on the floor to loop. I don't really want to be on a treadmill exerting tons of energy and not going anywhere. But there are people that are on these treadmills that are running like they are running the Boston Marathon and running to win. Uh, And I think to myself, I wonder why they would run so hard in a place like this. And I think it's because they know something that I don't know. That with all of this energy exerted on a treadmill, even though it looks like they're not going anywhere, there's something very significant happening underneath the surface. Their heart is getting healthier. Their blood flow is increasing. They're getting all kinds of endorphins that make them happy in their brain. So for them, the idea of being on a treadmill isn't useless. It's not purposeless, but they approach this ordinary activity with an extraordinary attitude that there's something deeper going on underneath the surface. So when Paul talks to his church in Colossae, when he says that you've received Christ Jesus, now continue to walk in him, he's not calling them to sell all of their possessions and move across the country. He's not calling them to write the next New York Times bestseller or to be the next president of the United States. What he's he's really calling them to is to approach the very ordinary things of their life with an extraordinary attitude that there's something deeper going on. Paul, in a sense, is calling the Christians of Colossae to be treadmill Christians, to move and to act in such a way in every routine part of their life as if God is present, as if he's active, as if 
He's doing something. I think that same call is extended to us. That whenever we approach an ordinary table and eat for the third or fourth time or second time in a day, depending on your schedule, it's not just another thing, but we have this opportunity to approach this ordinary table with the extraordinary attitude that God is present at the table. And when we go to work at that nine to five, day after day after day, it's not just the grind, it's not just routine, but we can approach it with the sense that I'm on the treadmill of of God. And I can approach my job, this very routine thing, as if God is present and active in it. In traffic on the 57 or the 210, you're gridlocked and you hate it. We all hate it, but we can actually approach these things that we have to do every day with a treadmill mentality. There's something deeper going on underneath the surface. So Paul is encouraging the church in Colossae to do that. I had a, a mentor in Oklahoma that I was underneath for several, several, several years. And uh, we still talk to this day, and we'll talk about preaching and teaching. And um, he said something to me one day that really stuck out to me. And, it, and it's really like rested and resonated in me for a while. We were talking about teaching and preaching. Um, and he said, Austin, do you know what really separates good teachers from decent teachers? I, I wanted to know. I knew I was headed in that direction to teach and to preach. I wanted to know. He said, they're the kinds of teachers that live their entire life before God. Not just the 30 minutes that they're on stage. And he really picked it up from one of his mentors. He was, he was a great communicator. Um, and we both had the chance to kind of get an inside look on, you know, this other guy's life as a pastor. I was good friends with his youngest son, and my mentor was good friends with his oldest son. And, and we actually saw the way that this pastor would would treat his family in the home. We kind of had the inside track, and we saw the way he prayed, and he cared after his family, and he carried this sense that God was present in his home. And when he'd drive, if, if you were with him and it was a long drive, you could actually catch him praying underneath of his breath because he believed in this very ordinary thing that God was present and something deeper was going on. At one time he said, uh, he was talking to my buddy and I, his son and my friend. And uh, we had the case of the I'm bored syndrome, which is a horrible syndrome to have. It just means you're not creative. You need to get out and go for a walk or something. Um, but we had this. And so we'd always be laying around flipping channels. And his dad would say, what are you guys, guys going to do today? I don't know. We're just bored. And he'd always lean into us and he'd say, you know, if you don't know how to be bored... You'll never know God. And it was the idea that in the, in the quiet places of life, in the routine places of life, that's where we can most frequently and consistently bump in to God's presence. And so currently, like Aaron Kerr was talking about just a few minutes ago, I'm, I'm actually part of a rooted group right now. Uh, I'm leading it, and we're, we're finishing up here in a couple weeks. And... Um, I think one of the things that we're doing in our group is we're, we're really learning how to be treadmill Christians. We're really learning how to talk through and pray through the very ordinary things of life and approach them with a kind of um, significance that something deeper is happening underneath the surface. 
You know, sometimes I think that we can be enamored by celebrity culture. I think that, like, we want to do something great. We want to write the next New York Times bestseller. We want to be famous. We want to be seen. We want the, the glitz and the glamour that comes with being known. But I think for our rooted group, I don't know that any of us will actually ever be in that place. But our lives aren't consumed with TVs and cameras and writing books, but it's consumed with kids. And it's consumed with our jobs. And it's consumed with our classmates. We're a very multi-generational group. And I love it. And, and I think as we're gathering, we're, we're learning to, to talk about these things and to say, this thing I used to see it as something ordinary. But I'm beginning to see it through this extraordinary lens that something deeper is happening. There was, there was one mom in our group uh, who was talking and she was kind of expressing her frustration that she didn't always have more time to do stuff at the church. She didn't have time to do stuff for parachurch organizations and nonprofits. She said, I have kids and they're demanding. All the parents are like, yes, that's right. They are demanding. They demand a lot of time, a lot of attention, a lot of affection, a lot of correction. But then she said, but I'm beginning to realize that my kids are my primary ministry. When I'm spending time with my kids and training them and correcting them, I, I, I sense the presence of God in the place. And so in our group, we're kind of learning to be this kind of treadmill Christian. We're learning to pray together, to encourage each other, to study together, to laugh together. I think we're really learning what it means by Paul when he says, stay rooted in God's story. Stay built up. Be a people that gather to pray together. So as we gather once a week and we remember the story that we come from by studying God's word, and as we pray together to be built up into God's house, I think we're finding this grand story of God being played out in our lives in the very routine, in the very ordinary ways. We're learning, in a sense, how to treadmill on God and in God's life. So that would be my encouragement to you today. If you want to get more deeply connected to the church or you want to learn, man, what's, what's, what's it like to look at my life, my ordinary life, through an extraordinary lens? What's it like to really gather together to study and to, bre- to pray and to be part of a multi-generational group? I would encourage you, talk to your friends. Talk to your family. Stop by the rooted table. You've got a card in front of you. You can fill it out and say, yeah, you know, I think I want to do this. I think for 10 weeks I want to gather to pray and to study with others and see what it's like for God to be active in the most ordinary parts of my life. So let's pray together. And let's ask God somehow throughout this week to be present in our schools and in our jobs and in our families. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in us. And God, would you move us to be rooted and to be built up in you, to remember the story that we come from, and to be the kinds of people that are being built up into a people that pray, into a people that look like your house. So God, would you give us the eyes to see the very ordinary things of our life through an extraordinary lens. Would you be present and would you be active? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.